five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. This week, my guest is astrophysicist Rob Thacker, a professor at St. Mary's University. Rob is also the new president of the Canadian Astronomical Society, a society of professional astronomers. He also co-hosts the CBC Nova Scotia radio show, The Sound of Science, is also a guest on News 1310's Ottawa Today show, and is a guest on Science Ship on Rogers TV. Our topic this week is Canadian astronomy missions and a recent independent report that offered mixed results on the Canadian Space Agency's space astronomy and planetary missions programs. The lack of funding was one of the issues the report mentioned. Also of note, the Canadian Space Agency's departmental plan for 2018-19, basically the agency's blueprint of what it will do in this current fiscal year, has no funding for any new astronomy missions. Welcome, Rob, to the Space Q podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on. Hey, so the Canadian Astronomical Society, known as CASCA, commissioned a new long-range astronomy plan, or a decadal plan, in 2009 for the period 2010 through 2020. This was done, it was a big thing, done in cooperation with uh, the Natural uh, Sciences and Engineering Research Council, or NSERC, the National Research Council, NRC, the Canadian Foundation for Innovation, CFI, the Association of Canadian Universities for Research and Astronomy, ACURA, and the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, That report was released in 2011, and then a midterm review was completed in 2016. Before we actually get into how the plan is progressing, can you highlight what the plan outlined as its goals and the missions that were proposed? Sure, absolutely. So, so the the key reason why we have to do these long range plans in astronomy is the amount of time that it takes to develop our missions. And so, when we're talking really big scale, several hundred million to billion dollar facilities, you you are looking at at least a decade. In fact, I can point to one particular thing: um, the Square Kilometer Array in radio astronomy, which is ground based, which has really been on the drawing board probably since the early 1990s, and we're still we're still not quite there in terms of getting that started and construction done. So so when you're in a situation like that, you have to sit down carefully and look at the priorities and that you have for your scientific research and then try and knit together a portfolio of projects that addresses as many different things as, as you need to. Um, it's... In some sense, it is a strategic plan. And so the challenges all the people who work in engineering will know with strategic plans is as soon as you've written your strategic plan, the next day, it's almost out of date in some sense. Things change, budgets change, priorities change, and so on. And so that's the reason why we have the midterm review after five years, just to sort of like chart where things have gone, what new things have bubbled up as well, and then essentially move things forward again at that five-year point. And so um, I think the 
thing that most people will probably realize is when, when you have such a long-term planning horizon for many things, uh, not too much tends to happen in five years, but every now and again, something crops up and, and things sometimes get stalled. As many of the readers will be aware, James Webb has been pushed back again from 2018 it went to 2019, then it was 2020, and then just yesterday we heard it's going to be 2021. And so you have to work within that sort of like shifting sands, as it were, of, of what's happening. So as uh, just commenting on how effective it is, I think it's tremendously effective. Um, we're a fairly small community. Now, CASCA as a professional astronomy society has about 500 members. There's around, I would say, 300 members who are uh, professional astronomers. So I'll include in that um, tenured faculty and postdoctoral researchers, as well as researchers attached to the Hertzberg Institute for Astrophysics in Victoria. And then there's probably around 200 student members in there as well. And those obviously doing research as well, but then I guess in a way they're paid, but we don't consider those as part of the full-time envelope. And so we, by writing this particular document, have a clear portfolio, and I'll just outline what we've picked in terms of missions that we can take to the government and say, these are what we want to fund and move forward. Now, one of the things that, again, anyone who works in space engineering in particular will be aware of is that you can't just look at your sort of like ecosystem of development and just say, well, we just need this one thing or that thing, and then sort of assume that everything is going to play out. As, as everyone knows, with development, particularly with technology development and so on, you need a tiered system, a sort of lower level for prototype development, then a mid-level that bring those prototypes up into full technology readiness. And then finally, once you've reached that technology readiness, then you get through the build and roll out into established technologies. And so for us in astronomy, that means having a clear plan in terms of how we support not just the really big flagship missions, but also the smaller missions as well. And, and we handle this within the long range plan by having what we call small, medium and large categories. Uh, typically, small is sub 10 million, medium 10 to 30 million, and then large would be the, the biggest sort of missions in 100 to 250 million dollar range for investment levels in Canada. Obviously, these actual whole missions themselves, something like WFIRST, that is a $3.2 billion mission, which we would contribute a small part of. And so we've uh, built the plan around this, and we try to make it absolutely clear that we can't just do the big ticket items. We do have to focus carefully on the technology development ecosystem we have and the science that comes from that. It's kind of ironic in some sense that although our plan is very, very focused on science. At the same time, we have our eyes very closely on the missions and the technologies that come out of those as well, because as I'm sure everyone understands, spin-offs as well as spin-ins are something that we're very concerned about. And not just the current government, but obviously the previous government was very concerned about making clear what the returns on investment were for space astronomy. And so we're quite focused on that. And I, I have no problem with that, although I do like to emphasize that the reason we do space astronomy is ultimately to learn more about what it means 
to be a human in this universe and answer those questions. The fact that we do get spin-offs, which depending upon who you talk to are measured in the range of one to one in terms of government dollar invested up to one to three. Now, if you talk to Canes, they'll say it's one to seven from France. So, so there is sort of a real return on investment. But again, I, I like to emphasize when I talk to politicians that, you know, yes, we do make an impact in terms of putting money on the table for the average Canadian, but it's about helping us understand where we fit in in this universe and essentially enriching that part of humanity as well. So that's that's a really big picture. In terms of the missions, um, so we divide into ground-based missions and space-based missions. And so that is, I'm gonna just say, that is a somewhat artificial separation for us. And the way we should really do this, again, engineers will be completely aware of this, is we should really have a capability matrix approach. But because ground-based astronomy development is funded primarily through the National Research Council and NSERC, and space-based is funded through the CSA, we, we create this division between the two. And then we try and make a careful synergy of the missions that we're involved in. But it does create a little bit of a disconnect. And, and so when we try and organize workshops, we're very aware of this and, and sort of you'll see that when we have space astronomy workshops, we're often talking about what we can do from the ground as well. And so on the ground, the key things that we supported there are, are number one and two priorities were the 30 meter telescope. And we were very happy to receive support for that from the Conservative government just before they left office in uh, 2015, I guess. And so that's a 243 million dollar commitment um but that's primarily ground-based and so we have some concerns about how that's moving forward and we can talk about that later as well yeah we will yeah um, yeah and then the second was the square kilometer array which is a radio telescope and so that's looking at doing a very different type of science, I would say, to the 30-meter telescope. But it's really designed to peer back and look at both the birth of structure in the universe, but also looking at the structure of galaxies in exquisite detail in the nearby universe as well. And there are many other things as well, star formation and things like that. That's, uh, like I said, radio telescope, very different technologies where you can essentially build a giant radio telescope from lots of smaller dishes or antenna uh, connected together and then working together. On the space side, and there are other missions, but uh, those are the two big tickets. On the space side, we were really committed to being involved in a mission that was focusing on dark energy. And in 2010, there were a number of different options. There was the Euclid mission, which is being flown by ESA, and that will fly in 2019, I think is the current launch date. And then WFIRST, which was the number one priority in the US decadal plan. And then the possibility, which is a really interesting idea of a Canadian space telescope called Castor now. And so in 2010, we literally said we, we want to be involved in one of these missions. And so the way things have progressed, involvement in a major way in Euclid was unfortunately never possible, although we do have some contribution to Euclid now via a different route, which again sort of ties into that link between space-based astronomy and ground-based astronomy. And then with WFIRST, as again some people may be aware, we were involved in that until quite recently. Uh, well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, and so, and then with Castor, 
What happened with Castor was uh, the key issue there is because it's a Canadian-led development, um, building international collaborations, but also doing proper costing on the mission as well as the technology development and maturation studies. So that has moved ahead, which is a really good thing. And so we're awaiting the final results from the science maturation studies. And it's good to see that continuing to move forward. I don't necessarily view um, if we were somehow involved in WFIRST, that would have necessarily said that we shouldn't be involved in CASTA. They're, they're really quite different science areas, although they are quite complementary. And so that dark energy was our number one, uh, or involvement in mission for dark energy was our number one priority for space astronomy. On the sort of like mid-level side, um, we have something called Lightbird, which is related to the cosmic microwave background and making great measurements of that, that we would really like to see Canadian involvement in. And, and that would that really speaks to a technology that we do well, readout technologies. But it also speaks to something that we do particularly well in terms of theory. Theory of the cosmic microwave background is something that Canada has really world-renowned strength in. So that plays to our specialties there. Now, in going through the, uh, the review, or in, in particular the midterm review, um, it said that major ground-based facilities have to be funded on an individual basis and administered by the research, National Research Council, unless funded by the Canadian Foundation for Innovation. And then this process can result in considerable uncertainties and delays in Canada joining new large facilities. Space projects must be funded through the CSA. In recent years, the CSA budget available for space science has dwindled to a level that cannot support the high-priority projects in the long-range plan. So it sounds like you're dealing with several problems here, uh, how funding is structured and allocated and lack of funding. Uh, in fact, the recently released independent audit of the Canadian Space Agency also found uh, similar problems. So let's start with the first issue, uh, structuring funding for larger projects. What can be done, if anything, to resolve this issue? Funnily enough, this issue really arises from <laughs> parliamentary mandate. And so the National Research Council is under parliamentary mandate. It has a mandate to operate the observatories that the government of Canada has an investment in. And the curious thing about astronomy is that if you look back in terms of how we operated, say, even 30 years ago, we, we primarily worked in what I would call an observatory way where we would have a facility, a telescope, and then people would submit proposals to the telescope. And if you submitted something that the reviewers thought was worthwhile, then you would get time on the telescope. And so what's changing is that we're moving towards a situation where not only do we have that observatory type situation, we're also moving towards a, a kind of model that's more experimental where you build um, observatories to do one particular thing. And this is particularly important for surveys where you literally just want to do the whole sky. And, and the poster child for this from the ground would be the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is an American telescope, going to be finished 2021, 2022. And so that will be just doing one particular thing and then spinning off all of the data to researchers to, to do the analysis and so on. So for us, that means that a mission type facility falls under the CFI mandate. And so we would point to something like CHIME, uh, this radio telescope in Pecticton as being a classic example of that. 
And so that's funded through the CFI and it operates in a survey mode. Whereas for facilities that are observatory facilities, and so there is a direct payment on an annual basis from the Canadian government, then that has to be administered through the NRC. And to be completely honest, we haven't had too many problems working in that environment. Um, We have a very, very good working relationship with the National Research Council through the Hertzberg Institute for Astrophysics. And I would say, quite frankly, that the success of HIA as a body is in large part down to the good working relationship that it has with university researchers. And that helps it not only in terms of its own internal planning, but also in terms of the quality of service that it delivers to the researchers as well. Um, That relationship is incredibly important. I mean, if we had a situation where the National Research Council started going off and just setting its own priorities on what it wants to do with astronomy, that would be a disastrous situation. And so fortunately, the NRC is well aware of the long range plan and essentially takes the long range plan as its marching orders. And so I would say, although we do have some issues, at least for the last few years, the NRC has been working extremely well with the university community. And, and that's that's pretty good. In fact, I don't mind admitting that I we met with, uh, when we were on the Hill, we met with the NRC president and just sort of described why we were so pleased at how this was working and, and some of our concerns about what could happen to spoil that relationship and make things um, less effective, let's put it that way, for the astronomy community in Canada. On the space-based side, um, the Canadian Space Agency, um, the the biggest challenge other than money to get missions off the ground, I mean, the, the money to do technology developments, to do prototype studies and so on has been there and is still there. We're talking like $1 million studies and so on. Um, but the problem to get things outside of that phase zero type situation where they really start moving ahead is something that we have struggled with. And so, for example, 2000 to 2010, there were seven different uh, space astronomy missions that we became involved in. But from 2009 to today, we've only had one, and that was Astro H. And I, I would include within that the replacement for Astro H, which is called Charm. And so... I'm not going to start criticizing the CSA because the fundamental problem, I think, as you're well aware, is the fact that the funding for space in Canada has become very focused on the, I I hate to say it, but it really is largely focused on the human spaceflight program and then Earth observation. And there's really very little room in what's essentially, although they won't describe it this way, a $200 million budget plus whatever they can get on a year-to-year basis. I mean, that is a fraction of what you would get for, say, if you take NASA funding, $20 billion a year divided by 10 to adjust for populations, you would expect the CSA budget to be $2 billion a year. But it's, it's, a, it's a tenth of that. And so the challenge for us is that there's no money to move ahead. There's really very little money for once we have actually been involved in a mission to support the science analysis, that is a huge challenge as well. And so NASA has a number of programs for that that we don't have in Canada. So it's tough. And and we really do have some sympathy for the CSA because they're working within a very constrained budget envelope. And, And that is a concern for us because what we don't want to put ourselves in as a community is a position where we do technology development 
And we say to international partners, yes, we want to be on board. And then when it comes down to the point where we have to put money on the table, then unfortunately that money isn't there. And that just makes us look like bad partners. And we don't want Canada to be in that position, obviously. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that very specific point you just made in a few minutes. But uh, in, in discussing the funding issue, I think everybody who listens to this podcast understands that uh, the Canadian uh, Space Agency uh, budget uh, or space budget in, in general in Canada for combined for everybody is definitely, uh, except for the military, uh, has definitely been taking a, a hit in the last couple of years and will continue at the current, uh, the way it's currently foreseen until we actually yeah. see a, you know, a new space plan come out from the yeah. government. Now, yeah. in terms of your, yourself, your group, um, how do you convince uh, the people that make these decisions that there is a serious issue and that does have long-term effects on what's happening within the community in Canada, how Canada is seen? How do you, how do you deal with that uh, to, to, to try and talk to government? Okay, well, I mean, this is, this is super sensitive. And so there are things that have happened that I can't honestly talk about within the podcast that I nonetheless will tell the government. And so the biggest challenge is the long lead time for development. And so when you have 10 or 15 year timelines for development, if you if you literally take a decade off, which we're almost in a situation of, that means in our space-based portfolio, we're literally gonna struggle to have any kind of missions for Canadian astronomers in the decade 2022 leading out to 2032 as well. I mean, there, there is obviously some things that we're interested in being involved in, like we would love to be involved in Athena as well, the X-ray mission that European Space Agency is working on. And I should have mentioned that earlier too. Um, it's a, Sorry, it's a long list of different missions to keep track of in my head. And so this is a real concern. And so we make this point and... I think there is an appreciation for that within the government. But the bigger concern that I have is, is this issue of international collaboration. I mean, we, we can talk about to the government about returns on investment and so on. And, and I think they do get that to a certain extent. The, ch the challenge is, as again, the listeners are well aware, that the cycle of government is much shorter than the development time of these missions. So if you have a situation where the government is looking for an immediate return on investment to, to be able to point to something and say, look, we did this and this is why you should reelect us, that, that's always going to be a challenge. And so I think it's a shame that we've not seen a bigger picture view on this since probably Chrétien Martin governments uh, and the last really true long-term space plan. So if we, if we don't have that, it's a real challenge. But as you're asking me to talk about how we try and convince the government of this. And so I, I speak to the impact that you have because of the long lead time, then the returns on investment, but also the impact that it has on us in terms of our viewpoint as an international nation. I mean, the ironic thing is Canada as a country tends to think that it's doing all of these good things around the world. But in reality, when you look at a number of technology developments that we're involved in, we're being given, I would argue, 
more value for money by other partners than we probably deserve. If you look at, for example, what we're getting for our contribution for the James Webb Space Telescope, there are a number of people in the US who would argue that Canada is getting far more value for money than it probably deserves, right? Now, that's there's no easy sort of like argument for whether that's true or not, but um, we've done tremendously well. And what we don't want to be in is a situation where we find our international partners resentful of our contributions. And so that is another thing that we bring up with the government. And I, and I think there are, there's an understanding of that. And obviously, um, the thing that we have in spades is this in, innovation, but also inspiration. And so inspiring people into careers in technology, I mean, space and dinosaurs, you go into a grade six class and every grade six student is enthused by this. I mean, I go and talk to these kids and it's just so much fun. And so I think there is an acceptance. I mean, even with astronomy, right? Here you have Sky News Canada, which has a huge readership. Like it's it's a significant fraction of hockey news, if you can believe that. And so it is this thing that Canadians clearly do care about. And so we, we make those arguments as well to the government. And, and I think they listen, but I mean, you're working in an environment where there's a lot of different competing voices to get the government's attention. So... Historically, if you have uh, some thoughts on this, are we in a low funding cycle? Has this happened in the past where we've gone through this type of thing where it's low funding, then they pick it up, and then it goes back into a, a low funding cycle? And, and if not, then why, why has the funding dried up? Um, I Certainly for space-based astronomy, yes, we're, we're very much in a low point of a cycle. And it, and so we have seen, if you go back to the early 1990s, I would say a, a similar situation. I, I would say um, that historically, large investments in research funding in Canada, particularly through the CFI, have had a really big knock-on effect. And astronomy has benefited in particular from that. Um the success of our community, I mean, and I should sort of like make the point that if you look at citations per paper, right, sort of like the the pound for pound measure, if you want, of the quality of, of research done, then Canada always figures in the top three in the world for astronomy. And so we've benefited primarily from being very well organized and having these plans, but also from significant investments in the CFI in the 1990s, which have kind of spurred on more investments. And so astronomy has become quite expensive, I would argue. Um, I mean, anyone who looks at the price of, say, the next generation facilities can see that, although we're not up in the stratosphere of things like the Large Hadron Collider or anything like that. I mean, those are, those truly are astronomical, if I can use the pun. And so, so I think that um, we've benefited from those investments, and, and that has helped us over time, but we've now reached the point with particularly space-based astronomy where we have seen the ESA's budget for any kind of space-based science dwindled to the point where we really are in an absolute low point of a cycle. And we would like to see this move ahead. But again, the, the, the gains that we had from 2000 to 2010, we really felt those in terms of the science outputs from like 2010 to 2015. And now we're sort of heading into a little bit of a, well, I say a little bit, a significant lull, probably until James Webb gets launched in 2021. And then we'll have a lot of good science 
milestones coming out of that, and we're genuinely excited. I mean, it's it's a big shame that uh, JWST isn't going on schedule, but obviously that's down to the contractors and making sure this thing really works at the end of the day. Okay, let's talk about some specific missions, <coughs> both uh, ground-based and space-based. So obviously one of the... Um, uh, largest commitments that's ba- been made in recent uh, years is the 243 million in 2015 for the 30 meter telescope in in Hawaii. Um, the decadal plan had that as a, uh, a mission that was of high priority. Um, that project, though, at the moment, uh, appears to be basically at a standstill as native Hawaiians have tried to block its construction as the telescope would be on lands they consider sacred. The midterm review said, in essence, that if there are construction delays, Canada should discontinue its partnership with uh, the 30-meter telescope and instead participate in the European Extreme Large Telescope. Considering that the uh, TMT is halted and there's no guarantee it will go forward, uh, should we pull out of this project? And is it still possible to participate in the European Extremely Large Telescope? Okay, so so just... One one point on this. So, so when we did the midterm review, we actually had TMT funding. It's the LRP 2010 that says if it doesn't move ahead by 2014, we should withdraw. And so the challenge is that when we wrote LRP 2010, there was still a possibility for significant involvement in the European ELT. And that has actually started construction in Chile already. And so... By the time that we got funding for TMT in 2015, um, essentially we were in a position where we were pleased to have the funding and it wasn't clear that there was going to be the level of protests in Hawaii that we've seen. I can talk about the Hawaii situation in just a second as well. So um, in a sense, once we got the money, our, our course was set. And so... Once construction was attempted to, to be begun on uh, Mauna Kea, then we had the, the protests. And so TMT is taking a very, um, I want to say, respectful approach to this and is respectful of this being a Hawaiian decision. And so this is going through the courts in Hawaii. At the end of the day, nobody really wants to be on a mountain where people don't want us there. Now, the challenge with this, of course, is that there may be some people who don't want us there, but the majority of native Hawaiians may want us there, right? Uh, So that's one of the issues. I mean, it's a very complicated situation and speaks to issues of colonialism as well. There are a number of concerns about the way the Mauna Kea um, declared area uh, is being managed by the University of Hawaii. And like I said, we we will see how that plays out. Now, TMT has made a decision that if Hawaii is not possible, then we will go to the Canaries and work there. Now, the Canaries are not as good as Mauna Kea from a science perspective, but um, nonetheless, there are advantages to having one telescope in the north, sort of these 30 meter class telescopes, having one in the Northern Hemisphere and one in the Southern Hemisphere, just for sky coverage. In terms of whether we could actually join the ELT now, 
it's it's difficult to see how that would happen in any effective way. Most of the major contracts for the ELT have been let, basically. And so a number of the things that we do well, in particular the dome, which is a fantastic Canadian design uh, by Dynamic Structures. And in fact, it's it's terrific when you hear ESO representatives stand up and say, oh, we wish we had the um, 30 TMT dome design because they have a particularly large and heavy design for the EELT. And so, nonetheless, um, I don't want to say that horse has bolted, but uh, we have a commitment from the government of $243 million for involvement in TMT. And if there is a situation where TMT does not move forward on Morning Care, the observatory has decided it will go to the Canaries. So we are in a situation where some people within the community don't like the idea of going to the Canaries. But we can only wait and see. There are two court proceedings going through right now, and we expect to see some kind of resolution in the fall on those. And so we'll wait and see. Okay. And as you said, with these large projects, um, there are always some unforeseen things that come along that can derail timelines. In particular, you mentioned it previously, the James Webb Space Telescope um, delayed another year, as we found out, now not launching until early 2021. Uh, and of course, the other thing that goes with that, which um, is the price tag, which is just ballooned from under a, well, under a billion dollars to over eight billion now. So in terms of the mission being delayed, what does that actually mean for the astronomy community, the individual astronomers? I mean, are people going to lose out on opportunities? Are they going to move on to other things or are they just going to wait? So the honest answer is people are just going to wait. The, the, the big challenge is that a number of people have been planning their research groups expecting James Webb to actually fly. So you think very carefully. Every time we write a grant in Canada, we, we write it on a five-year timeline for our personal grants. And so proposals that have gone on re- gone in recently have been talking about James Webb science. And so people will have been given money, in some cases, to hire people, and then they're not going to be able to hire those people because the thing isn't flying. And so, so that is a challenge. Um, in terms of getting science done, what happens in this situation is that we, we carry on doing science, but with other facilities. And so the science that we want to do with James Webb in particular, um, looking at atmospheres of extrasolar planets, uh, looking at some of the first galaxies in the universe, understanding those in, in exquisite detail, um, that's just going to have to wait. There's there's no two ways around it. Some of those things, we, we just don't have the wavelength access from the ground to do. And so... The short answer is we wait. Um, It is frustrating. It's particularly frustrating in that we were hoping to have some initial results from James Webb before we started the next decadal plan, and that would have been really useful for feeding into that and understanding perhaps a little bit of how we would build up our portfolio for the next decade. So that is is a challenge, and it's one of these things that um, operationally, what happens in astronomy feeds into the planning side really strongly. It's 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 really kind of not easy to separate planning from operations in astronomy. So so this delay on JWST is a particularly difficult thing for us to handle. But like I said, people will carry on doing science. They'll just do it with, in this case, probably ground-based telescopes like Gemini and so on. And then eventually, once JWST flies, we'll finally get to do the things that we really want to do. So... 
the James Webb Space Telescope was a very, uh, you know, major project, long lead time, extremely expensive. Canada has a stake in it. Canada is going to get uh, research time with the telescope, uh, even though it's delayed. The next major telescope project that was identified in the U.S. Uh, to go forward uh, in this class was the NASA Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, which you've mentioned already, W first, and. Uh, Canada did say that they were interested in it. There were some studies that were done, uh, but there was a little bit of, is the project going to go forward or not in the U.S.? Uh, and at this point, if Congress really, from what I've been reading, is interested in moving forward with this. Um, it was the White House that was actually interested in, in actually slowing <laughs> things down. Um, but Canada didn't commit to the funding in time. And because of that, we're not going to be participating in the next, you know, really big uh, telescope that's going to be coming out of the U.S. And we were poised to contribute some uh, um, uh, interesting uh, instruments to this. So uh, how big a loss is it to the community not being involved in W First? Well, I think the fact that the midterm review picked W first is something we really want to be in, involved in as essentially our number one uh, space-based priority at that time and is a testament to how big an impact not being involved is going to be. Now, with all of that said, that there's one thing that I have to be clear on, and, and so that is that the actual nature of W first was primarily as this mission situation that I talked about. So there would be specific surveys done and Canadian involvement in those surveys would be limited on the basis of our contribution. So what I will just call pay to play. And so WFIRST, as it stands, has potential contributions from other partners at the $100 million level. And so we were always looking at this mission from a perspective that it's fantastic um, but we can only be involved in it if we know what kind of Canadian involvement we can get for our given contribution. And the honest answer is we never got to have that discussion. <laughs> so we, we were talking about building something called the Integral Field Channel. And it's technology that Canadian companies are good at producing and would have done a, a bang up job doing. The overall investment level it depends upon who you talk to, and as people well aware, contingency is always an issue in these big engineering projects. But you're probably looking at the level of 80 to 100 million dollars. And so, knowing what that would have actually got us in terms of the science involvement is is not clear. We hadn't had that that conversation with NASA and the science team leaders in the U.S. Uh, but nonetheless, this was a fantastic project that does. What is essentially the true, I think, the true follow-on to Hubble? We always talk about James Webb as being the follow-on to Hubble, but WFIRST really is looking at the same wavelengths as Hubble and doing, or similar wavelengths, and, and doing huge patches of the sky as well, like 100 times faster than Hubble, right? So it had this tremendous capability. And so losing that, we're going to lose out on supernovae science. That's something where Canada is acknowledged as having done some of the best research in the world with the CFHT legacy surveys, but also all of the imaging related to high redshift galaxies as well. So dark energy and all of these things, I think that we have really 
acknowledge strengths in that we are essentially not going to be involved in if we can't find a way to be involved in W first. Now, I would say that um, there is a lot of concern in the US about what's happened with the particular instrument we were going to be building actually taken out of the whole mission. Uh, that takes away particularly from supernovae science and galaxy science as well. And a number of well, some Nobel, a Nobel laureate in the US is leading a charge to try and find some way that this instrument can be contributed as an independent instrument outside the usual NASA governance. Now, what Canada's involvement could be in that, uh, it's not clear. I don't want to say anything along those lines. Um, there are other other countries that could potentially contribute as well. So, um, so we would still like some kind of involvement. But again, the, the key thing for us with this fantastic mission was knowing what kind of an involvement we could actually have and then making our decisions based upon that. But like I said, we, at the moment, we're just not in it and we haven't even had a chance to have that conversation. And it's a, it's a really big loss. Okay, so I know you're pressed for time. So I've got a few more questions. So we'll try and get sure. through them quickly. Um, so looks like we're going to lose out potentially you know, from any real contribution to W first. What about Castor? This is a Canadian-led mission that's been uh, discussed for many years um, and that has some of the same characteristics as W first. Uh, is that a mission that, uh, that could uh, move forward? Well, I mean, uh, we as a community would love to see it move forward. I mean, the, the interesting situation is because Castor has not, really been fully costed uh, it's it's difficult to figure out the sort of like return on investment right now for the mission as a whole so we're really excited to see the results from the science maturation studies and so the honest answer is that if w first really is taken off the board for us as it is right now and there's no other way then yes definitely castor is something that we would like to see involvement in but the community as a whole will have to make that decision through the long-range planning process and so as you sort of hinted at earlier the next long-range plan will be written in 2020 so this is something that is really going to be in the headlights for this particular committee. And I'm happy to say that I won't be making the decision this time around or contributing to the decision this time around. And so, yes, I, the, the fascinating thing about Castor is the potential for Canadian leadership. Let's, let's be completely upfront. This would be a true Canadian space telescope beyond most. We would have amazing images that could be on the front page of the Globe and Mail the same way Hubble images appear on the New, New York Times. Um, there are some people who are less enthusiastic. It does a particular kind of survey science. Uh, there are much bigger telescopes being proposed in the US that will be considered as part of their decadal plan. But it's, uh, again, it's a question that I think that we have to look at as a community as a whole and then make a decision. And then once that decision is made, we'll, we'll move forward within that framework. All right. Um, just a couple of wrap-up questions. So in terms of the, the current decadal plan, um, are you disappointed in how, how it's progressed to, to this point, or is this basically uh, you know, the way it usually goes? I, I think, um, so the plan from 2000 to 2000 was 
2010 was just such an enormous success. Um, it came at a, a time when Canada was making really significant investments in, in fundamental science. And so we look back at that just like with eyes wide open and go, wow, that's incredible. So LRP 2010 has been really quite successful on ground-based missions. And so we have the investment in TMT, that money is there. We have a lot of enthusiasm for funding SKA, and that will move towards a decision probably within the next year or so. We have a lot of interest from the government in funding that. And it, and it is a mission where we can kind of choose our involvement levels. So I think the ground-based portfolio, we would say, is really a great success. Uh, Space-based is a is not a success. Space-based side of portfolio is, I think, in anyone's assessment, a, a failure. And, and that's enormously disappointing for us as a community and something that we are going to pay the price for over the next few years. And in particular, there are missions where we could have had significant involvement, Athena being one where there were technologies that we could have contributed that we were in some sense blocked from contributing from. And so that is that is a great disappointment. And I'm concerned particularly for the high energy physics, oh, sorry, high energy astronomy uh, community in Canada who really do rely upon uh, facilities that are above the atmosphere. This is a challenge for them. And we can carry on trying to scrimp and scrape involvement with other countries in missions that they're flying, but that's not good. And we don't want to be seen as the community that just sort of rides on other people's coattails. We really need to be involved as a full partner in these missions. Hi, and so my last question, which has nothing to do with our topic, but I like to ask it at the end, is what books are you reading right now or have recently read, and it doesn't have to be on uh, astronomy or space, uh, that you would recommend to our uh, listeners? Sure. So um, as you're aware, I was on the Hill speaking to uh, important stakeholders in government and members of the government as well. And uh, my preparation for that was a book called The Effective Citizen by a former MP from Nova Scotia, Graham Steele, well, an MLA, I should say. And so that was a very interesting discussion of what it's like to be uh, a member of a government and to be lobbied and what you listen to and what you don't listen to and what individual members of the public should know to actually uh, help improve their own lobbying efforts. So I read that and it was it was very interesting to see how what's called casework for MPs becomes the thing that dominates much of their time. So that's doing the work for constituents, handling the things like in some cases immigration queries, but also the, the concerns of your constituents come to dominate the time of many MPs. And so that was a real eye opener for me. And then learning about how those things get juggled within an office and sort of like not being too concerned if you only get to speak to the policy advisor as opposed to the member themselves and not being too concerned about that. So so that was a really helpful book for me to read and one that uh, I suggest people read, although I've still got a lot to learn about talking with members of the government. Have you heard of a book called Tragedy of the Commons? I ha I've heard of the concept, but I've not heard of that particular book. Ah, okay. Um, actually, I think it's actually called Tragedy in the Commons. Uh, and it was written a, a few years ago um, by a couple of, uh, well, 
I'm not actually trying to remember who the authors were, but anyway, it's a it's a fascinating book, and it's a survey of hundreds of former MPs and how uh, decisions are made in Parliament, how uh, individual MPs, uh, the work that they can do, and sometimes how they get obstructed by the party. Uh, so that's another fascinating book, I think, in in the vein of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean it's. It's very easy looking from the outside in to become really concerned about how decisions get made in politics. So, so knowing actually all of the different <laughs> levers, as it were, is really beneficial. So I'll definitely look that up. All right. So thank you, Rob, for being uh, my guest today and for taking time out. I know you're in Calgary at the uh, uh, annual meeting of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Uh, I hope we can get you on a future show. I absolutely love to. Thanks very much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at canada in space and if you use facebook you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page the space Q. if you like the show please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app